Our New Testament reading is from John chapter 19. Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The Lord looks on me a lowly servant. Henceforth all ages will call me blessed. The Almighty works marvels for me. Holy is God's name. God's mercy is from age to age on those who are faithful. God puts forth an arm and strength and scatters the proud hearted. Casts the mighty from their thrones and raises the lowly. God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. Protecting Israel, God's servant, remembering mercy, the mercy promised to our ancestors, to Abraham, Sarah, and their children forever. Maybe you recognize this. This is Mary's song. Luke 1, 46-55. These are the words that Mary sang before Elizabeth as she celebrated the joy and the hope of this miracle child that God had given her. Now, not once, but twice, Luke tells us that she treasured up all these miraculous things that were happening surrounding Jesus' birth, these moments, and she treasured them in her heart and pondered what they might mean. But Luke also tells us of another message about her soul. When Jesus is presented in the temple, there is a man there named Simeon who had been promised by the Lord that he would see the Messiah in his time. And Simeon prophesied over Mary, saying, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, too. So however she had treasured those words and the, the many things that happened around Jesus' death, or Jesus' birth, she must have felt that particular prophecy fulfilled now. We have been reflecting upon the seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross, uh, recorded in the Gospels. He may have said more, but these are what the, the Gospel writers record for us. This one is unique because Jesus is addressing his mother and his friend. Most of the statements that he gives on the cross are either to the Father, God the Father, or maybe no one in particular, just him, him crying out. Last week, he had a unique one of responding to someone who actually said something to him as he responds to the thief on the cross. But this week, this saying, he responds simply because he sees. 
two people who are very dear to his heart. And he tells them some of his last wishes. Some have called this the word of, word of love for obvious reasons, because it portrays a sense of deep love between mother and son and a dear friend. And John set the scene for us by telling us who's there. Let's review quickly who all is there. We have Mary, who's the mother of Jesus, soul-pierced, grieving, likely widowed by this time. We were just talking about this in an adult Bible study. Where is Joseph by this point? He's kind of nowhere uh, mentioned in the rest of the gospel narrative. It uh, seems unlikely, given what we have seen of his character in, around the birth story, that he would have just up and left. So he has probably passed by this time. Mary is widowed. Now she is losing her firstborn. We also see Mary's sister, so Jesus' aunt. Interesting, because we don't often hear about relatives in the Gospels. But they, are, they are mentioned. We also see another Mary. There's a lot of Marys. She's married to a guy named Clopas. Some suggest this is a, a variant spelling of Cleopas, who's mentioned as one of the disciples who was on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. It could have been the same person. And there's Mary Magdalene, who uh, joined the women who supported Jesus' ministry after Jesus had healed her, uh, cast out seven demons from her. When we look to the other Gospels, we see other versions of this same list that maybe give us a little more information as well. Um, except for Luke, who just mentions them as the women who followed him from Galilee, Matthew and Mark, uh, they actually give us some extra information. Uh, they put Mary Magdalene up front, possibly because of her prominent role in reporting the resurrection. Then they describe the other Mary, uh, not as wife of Clopas, but as the mother of James, the younger, one of the disciples, and of Joseph. Uh, and then Matthew describes the third individual as the mother of Zebedee's sons, while Mark gives the name uh, Salome or Salome. Many commentators agree that these are likely the same person, as we can kind of harmonize the other uh, things there, meaning that if that's the case, the disciples, James and John, also called the sons of thunder, would actually be first cousins of Jesus, which is kind of an interesting little connection there. Uh, this would make some sense of why their mother may feel that she can ask Jesus, to give her boys a special place in the kingdom. Maybe you remember that story as well, where she comes to Jesus saying, would you give my boys a, a seat at your right hand and at your left hand? And he says, I don't know that you know what you're asking when you say that. Right? Now, disclaimer, none of this is certain. And even if it were, it's more of a factoid than anything else. Right? It just kind of gives us some, some background information. But um, it would show a few things. One, that the relationships between Jesus and the disciples were maybe more complex than we even realized at first. But also that the identity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ was and is more significant to the gospel writers in the early church than any familial connections that were there. What seems more important to them was their identity as disciples. But this backdrop, it does give us some interesting context for the significant exchange that occurs at the cross. So what happened here? Jesus sees two people standing near, his mother, as well as the disciple whom he loved, which is generally accepted to be John, the son of Zebedee, the author of this gospel. It seems almost a prideful way to refer to yourself, right? The one whom Jesus loved. Like, Why would you call yourself that? But if you have ever undertaken 
to actually introduce yourself to anyone else as a child of God or one whom Jesus, is, Jesus loved. I think you'll find that pride is not typically the emotion that comes when you do that. I was actually uh, leading a um, weekend sort of thing, uh, helping high school students talk about call to ministry stuff called Brethren Academy, and, and the theme was identity for that, that weekend, and, and I made a point to introduce myself that weekend as, hi, I'm Corey, and I'm a child of God. And I was kind of doing that for uh, the rhetorical effect uh, purposely, but I even found even, even doing that, Pride was not the emotion that I felt when saying that. It's more like humility, gratitude, that we can call ourselves this. It's this feeling that uh, we have been the recipient of something that's wholly undeserved and yet freely offered nonetheless. The point is not our identity, but the, the giver of the love that we are receiving. And from this text alone, we might understand why John would call himself this. Because Jesus sees these two and he entrusts them to one another in his absence. So this disciple has been entrusted to take Jesus' mother as his own. And Mary to love this disciple as her own son. If that's not a special kind of love and honor, I don't know what is. So reflecting on this this morning, I want to suggest just two simple ways that this passage can teach us how to love like Jesus. And a simple encouragement. The first thing is that if I am to love like Jesus, it's probably going to involve caring for my family. It might be an obvious statement, but it's an important thing to note that it's not secondary as a commitment to following Jesus, but part of it. You may remember that Jesus has at times spoken forcefully about choosing to follow him even when it threatens family bonds. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and mother, wife, children, siblings, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross follow me cannot be my disciple. Now most of us instinctively feel this uh, responsibility to care for our family members, right? Kind of a, a thing that we just get within ourselves. But, and that would have been even more true in Jesus' culture and his time, where they prized family relationships so much. So, Jesus' statement there is jarring. It's understandable that some would be confused. And even if we take it as Jesus saying, you know, we should love God so much that it just feels like we hate these other people in comparison, um, it seems like Jesus is asking us in that to minimize our responsibility to care for our family members, which feels, it chafes against everything that we might naturally feel to be true. But I want to suggest three reasons I feel confident that isn't exactly what Jesus is saying there. The first being that we see Jesus, even on the cross, taking time to make arrangements for his widowed mother. He's taking time to care for his family. His mission was costly, and it's causing his own mother great pain, yet he remains committed both to the path that is before him, the path of the cross, and to the care of his mother. Second, related to that, Jesus actually denounces the Pharisees for declaring finances and resources that would have been given to be used to help take care of their parents, um, and instead calling them uh, devoted to God, and thus not caring for their parents, actually. They had basically made this loophole for themselves, that instead of caring for their aging parents, as would have been expected of anyone else, 
they said that that money should instead be considered as dedicated to God and in a way then just providing for them as religious leaders uh, in the temple. In contrast, Jesus wasn't talking about redirecting funds from family to ministry. Jesus was talking about choosing to follow him into the kind of danger that may cause friction with family relationships, with the people who love us the most and don't want us to be in harm's way. So he's saying that we should be prepared, that they may not like the decision that we make to follow him. But that doesn't mean that he's saying we shouldn't care for our family. Finally, I'll also mention that the early church obviously maintained an importance of caring for relatives. In the letter to his disciple Timothy, the Apostle Paul notes that the church ought to care for widows who are in need, but also that any of their kids and grandkids ought to be the first line of support for them. In 1 Timothy 5.8, he's even as bold to say that anyone who does not provide for their relative, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So our faith is expressed in our care for others, and that's not limited to our own faith but it would be absurd if it didn't include our own family. This can take a bunch of different forms, and I know that we have many who are doing this very thing, serving and caring for their families in very sacrificial ways. It can look like taking in aging parents or grandparents or nieces or nephews uh, or grandkids in need and providing for them as as your own uh, family here. Uh, Providing financial support, even when you can't be present in person, or even hiring caregivers if you cannot provide the care yourself. But the principle is the same, no matter how it works itself out, that followers of Christ, they ought to follow his example in caring for our families. Even if, by the way, even if they don't accept the way of life that we have chosen, even if they're difficult, doesn't really matter. You don't have to agree with someone to care for them. You have to agree with them on all things. And I would go so far as to say, if we would expect that uh, as Christians, that we, we want our family members to care for us, even if they don't agree with our uh, worldview uh, and, and our, our way of life and our faith, then we ought to expect it to go the other way as well, that we would care for uh, our family, even if they don't agree with us on everything. I could go on on that, but I don't want to stray too far from the point. The point here in the passage being that Jesus cares for his mother. He knows that he will rise again, but he also knows that he will ascend that his mother is going to need a caregiver. And so he makes arrangements for his mother. Jesus cared for his family, and if we want to love like Jesus, we should care for ours as well. But it doesn't just stop with blood relations. right? Loving like Jesus also looks like caring for those without family. There is an overwhelming theme throughout the Old and New Testaments of God's priority for the care of the orphan, the widow, and the stranger, all people who are often lacking a network of support. In this case, the widow that Jesus is establishing care for is his own mother. And the caregiver, possibly a relative, at the very least, a trusted friend. We may well ask why Jesus did not entrust the care of his mother to his brothers and sisters. By the way, yes, Jesus did have brothers. It's understandable if you would have missed it because they're only mentioned briefly in the Gospels, like I said earlier, but they they are mentioned. Uh, In Matthew 13, 53 and 55, as well as in Mark 6, 3, these are parallel accounts of the same thing. They note that there were people wondering at Jesus' ministry, saying, isn't this Joseph's boy? 
Aren't his brothers James and, and Joseph and uh, Simon and Jude? So names, four brothers here. Aren't his sisters among us? We even know that two of those brothers, James and Jude, would later become prominent leaders in the early church. We even have letters from them in our Bibles. But that was later. During his ministry, they didn't believe all the hype about him. Earlier in John chapter 7, there's a moment where Jesus is he's laying low because he knows that the religious leaders are trying to trip him up. They're looking for any excuse to catch him uh, and to have him killed. But it says that his brothers tease him, saying, Leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples can see the works you do. No one wants to uh, become a public figure and, and act in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. They're kind of prodding him on. And John makes the comment here, for even his brothers did not believe him. At another point, uh, Mark's gospel says they, they tried to take him home because they thought that he was out of his mind, beside himself. So reading between the lines, I would not imagine that his brothers, the rest of his family, were thrilled by the dangerous situation that their mother is now in, just being close to him at the cross. Does Jesus want to commit her to their care? No, he chooses someone who trusts and understands. And John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, doesn't even hesitate for a moment. The NIV says that he took her into his own home. That's consistent with most translations. The, the Greek simply says he took her into his own, basically as his own mother to care for. Whether it's someone with no family or with strained family relationships like Jesus seemed to have, Jesus wants people to be cared for deeply as beloved sons and daughters. And the church, as the family of God, is the prime place for that to happen. My wife and I were talking about this week, and she noticed uh, or, or noted that it's an increasing challenge in our world as uh, our world is more and more stratified. We have so many ways in which you're only hanging out with people that are in your own age group. You know, whether it's at, at school, you're always with your immediate peers. Um, you, whether it's uh, in things like uh, care facilities or, um, or work, you you're always seem to be around people who are kind of roughly the same age as, you, as yourself. But the kingdom of God is for all. And there's so much to learn from when we reach across these inadvertent barriers that maybe uh, come up but when we can love and care for people in every other demographic category than our own. I was reflecting and thinking about how valuable my experience was growing up um, in my church, not just because of being able to hear sermons on a Sunday morning or anything like that, but, uh, uh, but just the informal time. Like the this is the value of fellowship time, to, to see your neighbors, right, to, to chat, to talk with people. I still remember uh, Jim Fox who every Sunday, as I would, would go around shaking hands and stuff like that, he would always slug me on the shoulder. It always hurt, but I remembered it. And I, now I remember it fondly. It was just a part of church, a part of, uh, part of life together. And I remember um, Christmas cards being sent around to everyone. I remember, um, there's, I remember one Sunday when uh, uh, there was some chattering going on, and... Uh, my, my friend Garrett's mom, Tammy, she turns back to, to tell us to be quiet, only to find out that it's not us talking. It's some older ladies in the back row who are, who are chit-chatting together. And it's, it's one of those things that's just like, it's silly, but it's family. Right? Even though we're not like blood relation, there's something about 
just spending life together that knits us together in this way. And again, there's no one right way to do this, right? I know that many of us do this in, in, their, in our own ways. People who are involved with things like uh, Big Brother, Big Sister. Uh, people who, who do uh, foster parenting or, or who uh, prioritize visitation to care facilities and caring for neighbors. Right? The possibilities are endless, but the principle is the same. That we look for ways to care for others sacrificially. And that in this way we become family for those who have none a deeper sort of family that exists even for those who have strong family ties. And I think that's the real guiding impulse behind the kind of confusing teaching that Jesus gives when his family, they come and try to collect him, thinking he's crazy. Is the crowds, they, they tell him, hey, your mom and your brothers, they're looking for you. And he looks around, and he says, well, who's my mother my brothers? He points to the disciples. He says, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, my brother, my sister, and mother. I don't think he was being dismissive of his family. Certainly not his mother. He loves his mother, right? But it seems that he sensed they needed to grasp something important. I think he was showing them, and all of us, that family is more than we think. It's not just about caring for loved ones because of a sense of familial duty, right? It's about caring for all people because we are united in his will his love for us. And this is the good news, that both care for the family and care for the least are rooted in the same values in God's kingdom, that all are precious sons and daughters of the king, that Jesus is particularly close to the hurting and the estranged. So, we have, we have Mary, soul-pierced, widowed, possibly with some tension with her remaining children. We have John, once described as a son of thunder, desiring a special place of authority in the kingdom, now to be known as the apostle of love. And even if you read John's letters later in the New Testament, they just ooze love, compassion. And we have Jesus in this short moment giving us a picture of what love is like in the family of God, creating bonds of unity even in the midst of his own suffering. Jesus gives hope to the grieving and lonely because he knows what it's like. He uniquely offers comfort and peace. Jesus knows what it is like to have strained family relationships. Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood. Jesus knows what it's like to be ridiculed and dismissed by his own family. Jesus knows what it's like to struggle to make peace but not everyone understands. And Jesus knows what it's like to navigate care for your loved ones when you know you have few resources of your own. But not only does Jesus empathize with us, he invites us into something better and more deeply fulfilling than we ever could have imagined for ourselves. To love each of his beloved children as they, if they were our own father, mother, sister, brother, son, or daughter. He invites us into family God. And he has enabled us to love, even when it's difficult. Because he first loved us. He tells us that, John. May we receive Jesus and all his family.